First, Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46, and then Matthew 7, 21 through 23. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in and need, or needing clothing and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteousness to eternal life. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. <clears throat> this is God's word. I thought it was wise to end 2011 and begin 2012 with two of the most difficult and unsettling passages in the New Testament. Don't worry. I think we'll find it helpful and encouraging. Let's look at the first reading. First reading, at first glance, seems to contradict. A parable of sheep and goats seems to contradict everything that Jesus has said up um, to this point. The first 24 and a half chapters of Matthew, Jesus teaches something that seems a lot different than our parable. Up to this point, Jesus gave parable after parable to show us that salvation, both in this world and in the world to come, comes by God's grace, God's love, God's mercy alone. Jesus continually shoots down the fact that badness and goodness really have nothing to do with receiving God's forgiveness and salvation. Our relationship with God comes through faith. Through trust alone. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal, actually it's the prodigal sons. One son goes out and blows his inheritance on wild living and then changes his mind, decides that was a bad thing to do. And he comes back to the father and the father embraces him and throws a party. 
while the other son, the do-gooder, the older brother, is furious with the father's grace, and he remains outside the party. Then there's the parable of the 11th hour workers. Now, those 11th hour workers don't work 12 times as hard as the other workers to make up for the fact that they were only here for one hour, but they still get the same pay. Then there's the parable of the publican and the sinner and the Pharisee, and they're, they're standing by the temple praying. The publican stands off at a distance, doesn't even look his, lift his head to heaven. He doesn't reform. He just prays, God, have mercy on me. And he leaves justified. Where the Pharisee talks about his ability to tithe, his ability to fast, his ability to pray, but leaves unjustified. I could go on and on. Jesus is crystal clear that goodness or badness has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is a gift of acceptance that can only be received by trusting the giver. It can't be earned, can't be bought. You can't be born into the right family to earn it. All you can do is trust the giver of it. The sheep and the goats seem to say, hey, if I do, if I, was, if I help the needy out, I'm in. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, he's not contradicting himself. Jesus is pretty crystal clear throughout his teachings that salvation is a gift from God. But the gift of salvation, in a way, is a lot like the gift of a pair of glasses for someone who has never wore glasses before. And for those of you who wore glasses before, you remember that first experience where the first time you're putting on glasses? I remember mine very vividly. I was the first person in my family to have glasses, and it hit me my junior year in college. And um, I remember I was, I was in class, and I, I couldn't see the blackboard anymore. It was, you know, it was this gradual thing, but all of a sudden it just dawned on me I can't see distance anymore. Everything looks fuzzy. And so I found myself in the uh, chair of the eye doctor trying to force my eyes to do, you know, read those bottom two lines. And the optometrist points to the lines, and honestly, they look like ants marching across the page. They don't look like letters in the alphabet at all. How about the, the line above that? Uh, maybe I got three out of seven. The line above that, though, I nailed perfectly. And then uh, through a, a series of frustrating one, lens one or lens two, lens one or lens two, lens one or lens two, we figured it out, <clears throat> got my glasses, like, I don't know, 45 minutes later, and uh, I remember walking out of the parking lot, and there was this big... Um, row of trees, and it was in October in Massachusetts, and the foliage was just prime. And I remember putting on my glasses, and it was like the Hallelujah Course that we sang last week. And my prescription really isn't that bad. It's not that thick, but all of a sudden, boom, I could see the colors vividly. I could see the, the, uh, the trees clearly and crisply. Everything took on new and vibrant 
uh, condition. And my vision wasn't all that bad. The same happens to us when we receive the gift of salvation. The Bible says God's spirit infuses Christ in us and we become new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We now look at life. We now look at people, priorities, circumstances, events. We look at everything different with crisp clarity. Life takes on new meaning. The things we valued before Christ are not the things we value now. We may have put a high value on looking the part or getting all the right things or keeping up with the status quo. We may, value, may have valued sports above everything. We may have, um, our, our kids may have been our end-all, be-all. Or maybe it was just pleasure, being happy that we valued most. Or routine, maybe we valued routine. Everything that once played a driving force in our lives now plays second fiddle to the creator of the universe. Because of our new lenses, our, our top priorities should now be his top priorities. Our deepest concerns and cares should align with God's deepest concerns and cares. Our primary passions are the same things God is passionate about. Salvation isn't just fire insurance or a free pass to heaven. It's salvation in this life, too. It's freedom, liberation from the desires that trap us in and lock us down. It's healing. It's restoration. In essence, it's a new way of living. It's a new way of seeing. The sheep don't recognize that they're serving Christ when they give a meal to someone hungry. They don't think they're serving Christ when they give someone a winter coat or visit someone lonely or forgotten. They don't think they're encountering Christ when they encourage or include the odd man out. They're just doing it because the free gift of acceptance they received has changed them. They are different people because of Christ. People, relationships, material goods, time, priorities, possessions, everything has taken a different value. They are now means to an end. They are fuel to a purposeful, satisfying life following Christ. The parable is actually, is really a warning. It's saying, are your values God's values? Are your cares God's cares? Is your time and energy and money being spent in a way that God says, yes, way to go. I couldn't have done that one better myself. If it isn't, it might be some time for some corrective lenses. Maybe it's time to start thinking of goals and values and vision. Whose goals are you living out? Whose values are driving what you do? Whose vision is casting the story of your life? If the answer is my own values, my own goals, my own vision, and today is the perfect day to make a change. To say, God, in 2012, my life will change because I am embracing all that Christ 
has for me and has done for me. That's much more the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Moral action will never open the door to the kingdom of heaven, just like moral inadequacy will never lock it shut. It's all grace. It's a very expensive gift that was purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus and given to us freely by him. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We don't deserve it. All we can do is believe it and let it change us. Let's take this one step deeper this morning by looking at our second reading. I think I have it again here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This teaching is at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus' first teachings, his first set of teachings recorded in Matthew. And the sheep of the goats is Jesus' last set of teachings recorded in Matthew. They're bookends, kind of like the end of 2011 and the beginning of 2012. Like, and, and this teaching here in Matthew 7 really focuses on the goats. Like the goats in our last passage, the people say, But Lord, they acknowledge Jesus for who he is. And only in this reading, in verse 21, they take it a step further. They say, Lord, Lord implying sincerity, implying close relationship. And from all outward appearances, it seems like they are close to him. I mean, they're doing incredible things in his name and with his authority. Surely only someone in a good relationship with Jesus could do that. So what's going on? This is what I want to hone in on. They are doing some very good things. And they're doing it for, for Jesus Yet somehow, Jesus says, I don't know you. We're not in any kind of relationship. How can this be? How can anyone perform a miracle but not be in good standing with God? I think Jesus is trying to make the same point as he was in the sheep and the goats. Notice the one thing that each of those items in the list have in common. They are all external things that can be done from a position of power or privilege. They're, they're all things that, that look good, at least in Jesus' audience. If we go around driving out demons in, in Elmhurst, it may not look as good as in, in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, these were all ego boosters. They're all good things no doubt, but they're all external actions that are showy, that deal with power and authority. They're not actions that show sacrifice or submission or mercy or compassion. Remember the sheep? They're spending time, resources, and energy on the L's. 
the least, the last, the lost. There's no record about hanging out with the peas, the powerful, the privileged, those who care about position and appearance. Okay, appearance is an A, but it has two P's afterwards, and I'm trying to make it as as memorable as possible. The sheep are spending time with the least, the last, the lost. See, a legalistic righteous person would preach, right? A legalistic righteous person would teach. A legalistic righteous person would pray. But if they didn't have the heart of Christ, would they invite the lonely into their homes? Would they visit the sinner in prison? Would they go out of their way to get clothes for those who are lacking? Would they care about the least, the lost, the last? Well, Jesus did. So if we believe in and embrace the salvation that he brings, then we will too. The force of these two passages together should really cause us to make sure we're seeing our life clearly. The second passage is a warning also. It's warning us that if we have large parts of Scripture memorized, but we don't know the names of our neighbors, then we may need a vision correction. It's a warning that if we've been going to the church since the day we were baptized, but we never ventured out beyond the church walls, then we may need a vision correction. It's a warning that if we have great fellowship among believers, but have never personally inconvenienced ourselves to help the least or the last or the lost, then we may need a vision correction. I picked these two passages not because they're nice bookends in Jesus' teachings, but they are, but because they are like sitting in the optometrist chair with Jesus, the great physician, saying, okay, now read the bottom two lines. And we're saying, are there even letters down there? Our life in Christ should change us. With salvation comes the abundant life that Jesus promised. And that should change what drives us. It should change our desires. It should change our appetites. It should change our priorities. It should change our vision. We should not only be changed, but we should be changing. Changing more and more into our God-intended selves. If you know God and are and are intentionally following Christ, then you are changing. And if you are not changing, then your faith and your relationship is stuck. If you're 30 and you're not changing, becoming more and more the way God intended to you, then your faith is stuck. If you're 50 and you're not changing, then your faith is stuck. If you're 75 and your faith is not changing you, you are not changing, then you're stuck. If you're 85 or 90 and you're not changing, 
and your faith is stuck. Paul says in this amazing passage, and I have it up here in Philippians um, 3, it says, uh, it says the same thing in the NIV, but this is the, the, the J.B. Phillips translation. It's a 1960 translation that came out before the NIV, and was, um, but it just says it very poetically here and in a fresh way. So here's the, the J.B. Phillips translation. Yet, my brothers, I do not consider myself to have arrived. This is Paul, spiritually. Nor do I consider myself already perfect. But I keep going on, grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ grasped me. My brothers, I do not consider myself to have, grasped, to have fully grasped it even now, but I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind, and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal, my reward, the honor of being called God in Christ, by God in Christ. This is Paul, the author of much of the New Testament. He's saying, I am changing. I am continually changing. I've been working on this for um, a little over a year. It's been my theme for 2011, and I think it's going to be my theme for 2012. I think I've shared this from the pulpit once or twice before, that in the middle of December of uh, 2010, I started getting... I, I always sleep like a log, okay? I never have a problem sleeping. And I started waking up at 3.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30, and when I, I'm just like, boom, awake. This has never happened to me all my life. And I feel like, all right, God wants me to pray. And so I'd go downstairs and pray. And uh, after a few days of this, a few mornings of this, um, I really felt that the Lord was directing me to consider uh, something that I really felt like he's saying, man, you know a lot about the Bible. You're in the Bible every week. It's part of your job. But there are parts of the Bible that don't jive with your life. And I want you to take serious what you're reading. And so for the last year, I've been reading Jesus' words like, take up your cross daily. Sacrifice your daily desires to me. Or love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Those are some hard stuff. And so, 2011, I feel like God has just done a number on me spiritually. And I don't think he's done yet. And so, as we start 2007, I am deciding that I'm not going to stay where I'm at. Where I'm at spiritually in 2011 is I'm going to leave that behind and move on. And that's going to be my prayer for 2013, that where I was at in 2012, I will move on. And in 2014, I'm going to pray that where I was at in 2013, I'm going to move on. If we're not changing, if we're not becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior, then our faith is stuck. Paul puts this really bluntly in Galatians 6, 15 and 16. He says this, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. 
man, that's my whole sermon in like 60 seconds. I mean, uh, six seconds. Neither the law or following the law or doesn't fall, not, not following the law means anything. What counts is a new creation. God is a God of new beginnings. For 2012, will you and I allow him to correct our vision so we can move forward seeing things more and more clearly into the new year?